to the NFL. Hello, folks, and welcome to another episode of the Rookie Rundown. It's been about a week and a half since you all have heard this lovely, sultry voice of mine. I was enjoying the 4th of July festivities out of the lake last weekend, so my man Memphis took over for me. But tonight is going to be a fun episode, guys, and it's one that uh, I've kind of been saving. As a lot of you know, if you've listened to podcasts that I've been on in the past, I am quite the Michael Carter fan. And I am probably in a vast majority, um, sorry, not majority, minority, when it comes to the fact that I think that Michael Carter projects as a better running back in the NFL and is poised to have a better 2021 season than what we're going to get from a guy like Javante Williams, his partner in the backfield. And thus, this episode is going to be about the University of North Carolina running backs, specifically Javante Williams and Michael Carter. For a lot of you out there, you may not realize how close these two players were across their collegiate career in production. And specifically today, we're going to be looking at the last two years underneath Mac Brown. His system pretty much revitalized what we saw from the University of North Carolina over about the last decade or so. Um, Giovanni Bernard was the last relevant running back prospect to come out of North Carolina. And um, it's actually a pretty good comparable for a guy like Michael Carter. But underneath Mac Brown, it has been a complete turnaround. Uh, The University of North Carolina team has turned into one of the best offensive teams in the country. And they were this year able to basically put out two wide receivers and two running back prospects that have a real shot at being relevant in the NFL, not only in their first year, but for years to come. So you know the deal. We're going to be breaking it down based off of college production, the metrics, as well as the systems they're going into. And then I think this one is actually pretty interesting because we've got two new offensive coordinators specifically coming in for the teams. Um, Pat Sherman was in Denver last year, but uh, he has hopped around quite a bit, and his success and faults have been something that has been talked about quite a bit in the media. So we'll start off with Javante Williams. Over the last two years, Javante Williams coming in at five foot ten, he measured in a little bit shorter and a little bit lighter than we all anticipated at his pro day. A lot of people thought he was going to be in the 220s, maybe even pushing 230 based off of his running style, but he actually came in to his pro day at 212 pounds. As a comparison, Michael Carter came in as two inches shorter at 5'8", which is pretty much what we thought. He is that stockier, low-to-the-ground build, kind of what you saw with a guy like Gio Bernard, Devonta Freeman, or my personal comp, Ray Rice. So the difference, though, in poundage becomes a lot less now the fact that Javante Williams came in at 212. Michael Carter came in at the pro day at 201. So all in all, there's 11-pound difference. It really doesn't look like that big of a deal when it comes to the weight, especially when you look at their BMI and how their bodies are set up. I think both of them are very comfortable weights at those weights, and their playing styles are kind of suited to that. Um The only concern I have a little bit, as I've brought up in the past, is how Javante Williams runs. He has a very similar physical style to a guy like 
Marshawn Lynch, a lot of people like to compare him to. Um, for me, I see a lot of Chris Carson's game in him. He's very violent. Uh, it's just, it's a train wreck every single time he makes a collision with another guy. I'm sure everyone out here has seen the Miami highlight of him just steamrolling that poor safety all game, specifically the big hit in the second half. But that type of play style really does not lead to healthy, long careers. Marshawn Lynch is, uh, Marshawn Lynch is actually kind of the enigma in that field with running that violently and not having long bouts of injury concerns. A guy like Chris Carson, who I see a lot of Javante Williams in, has had a lot of injury concerns. Um, yes, he's had the crazy production. Yes, he's been very consistent when you've been able to put him in your lineup. But the fact is you cannot rely on a guy like that typically for a full 16-game season. And with it expanding to 17 games as it is, that makes it even a little bit more questionable in my eyes. So the weight coming in at 212 is a little bit bigger of a deal for me when it comes to Javante Williams than Michael Carter being even lighter just when it comes to the overall BMI metrics. Um, they're both in that like 30 range, um, but it's a little bit more concerning because Michael Carter's not a put the head down and I'm trying to hurt you every time I run kind of player. Uh, when you look at their ages, there's only a nine month difference in their ages. Javante Williams is the younger one. He came in the year after Michael Carter did. So he's 21. Michael Carter's 22. Um, the biggest difference, honestly, with the two players, which was very concerning to me at first um, and just a little bit weird when you look at it is the draft capital overall. So the Denver Broncos actually ended up trading up to hop in front of Miami at 35 overall to select Mr. Javante Williams in the second round. Michael Carter actually fell into the very beginning of the fourth round at the 107 pick. So there's been some reports out there, some actual interviews with Salah saying that they were basically planning on taking him early in the third round, but their third round, uh, sorry, not the third round. They were planning on taking him uh, potentially at the end of the second round, but with their trade up with uh, to snag Elijah Vera Tucker, basically they gave up their third round pick and late second in order to basically move up to get the guy that they wanted in the first round. So that basically pushed a guy that they were considering upwards of a round and a half earlier all the way back to the fourth, he was falling. And so they were actually ecstatic to be able to get the guy in Michael Carter to fill their backfield needs with the loss of the guy like Frank Gore this last offseason, which they fit just perennially have been feeding targets for some reason. Um, so the draft capital, although quite a bit later for Michael Carter, um, the more you have time to think about the situation, the draft picks that were there, and the fact that they had their eye on him from a very early point, I'm very optimistic at the fact that even though he was slightly later in round selection, he is not any less as touted by the team. When you're looking at the overall stats, we'll go into the receiving game. So this is something that the numbers is a little bit deceiving on. Uh, for anyone who didn't actually watch UNC highlights or hasn't gotten a chance to watch the actual tape on the guys like Michael Carter and Javante Williams. So both of them actually had an identical 9% target share of the last two years. They turned that into 42 receptions and 46 receptions a piece. So right around that 40. So you're looking at about 20 per season. Um, Javante Williams actually out yardaged a guy like Michael Carter by 60 yards. He had 481 receiving yards to Michael Carter's 421. And they both had four receiving touchdowns over that span. So that is extremely surprising to me. I, when I was looking into the numbers, I wasn't expecting to see, I guess, 
the exact same production from the two players because Javante Williams is not what I would call sure-handed. He is very steady. Um, He can make catches, but he's known to make body catches, and he's known to kind of double clutch, as they like to call it, the ball. Michael Carter, on the other hand, is the prototypical satellite back that you think of when it comes to his receiving ability. He's smooth in route running, which is something that Javante desperately needs to work on. And his hands are extremely natural and fluid. Um, I was looking through it and I couldn't find a single drop actually that he's had from the running back position, which was pretty impressive. And when you're looking at those two players, although the numbers kind of lean towards Javante Williams, if you actually take a little bit deeper of a dive into the tape of the two players, you can see that receiving game is not really what you're going to be getting for Javante Williams. It is a good sign that he is capable of doing it he's not like a guy like jordan howard who everyone likes to just kind of crap on um he's not a ronald jones type he's just an average pass catcher again kind of like chris carson he's capable of catching the ball if he's thrown to him but that's not what he's predicated to do and it's not what he's going to do for your team he's going to be that thumper and he can stay on the field without being an issue. Um, The reason he's going to stay on the field is that a lot of people don't talk about this, but Javante Williams is very easily the best pass protector running back out of anyone in this year's draft class. Um, I was looking through the numbers again, and he only allowed one sack his entire time that he was with North Carolina. And when you look at it, it was actually two years ago. Um, so when he started getting a little bit of time in the offense, his saw, sorry, not sophomore, his freshman year. Um, so Javante Williams is clinical in pass protection. His size helps him quite a bit. Um, again, we think he was playing a little bit heavier than what he came in as combine at, but it's very advantageous that he comes in with a technique that is necessary to get young running backs on the field on third down specifically. So that will give him an edge over a guy like Melvin Gordon, who's just kind of average when it comes to pass protection, Um, especially when you have the quarterback position up in the air, like you do in Denver, having a guy that can solidify your third down offense and put an extra blocker in there if need be is something that can really help either Drew Locke take the next step or secure a guy like Teddy Bridgewater in the pocket so where he doesn't panic and make some of the mistakes that he's predicated on, potentially open up his game downfield, which would help the overall offense. Michael Carter, um, he is a decent pass protector. Don't get me wrong, he's not bad at all. Um, He's actually pretty good when you watch his tape. The only issue is the size aspect on that one being only 200 pounds trying to pass block a nose tackle does not work. And there's a couple of plays that you can actually find where he's just getting blown up. He'll put his body on the line, but like the guy's a hundred pounds heavier than him. And there's just nothing he can do about it basically. Um, so pass pro I'm going to go ahead and lead Javante Williams receiving skills. I will obviously lean with my guy, Michael Carter and the overall um, profile of what you're looking at. I think they both are going to fill their roles appropriately but with the way that the actual game is transitioning kind of away from those road burners or graders i guess sorry wrong phrase road graders that we're used to from the past i think that michael carter's actual pro uh, profile as a guy who is very good between the tackles and amazing in the pass catching realm is going to lead him into a better scheme fit and overall nfl role fit at the next level than a guy like javante williams regardless of the highlight plays that everyone likes to point at with a guy like Javante Williams. So when you go into the actual rush stats, this is something that often 
surprises people. Um, just as the receiving stats were nearly identical for the two, the rushing stats were even more so almost identical with Michael Carter actually outrushing Javante Williams over the last two years. So Javante Williams put in 323 carries over the last two years for 2,073 yards. That equates to a 6.4 yards per carry average. And when compared to his counterpart, Michael Carter, Michael Carter put in 10 more carries, but for 200 more yards. So he was actually at 2,248 yards at 6.8 a pop. So on the ground from all the base metrics of rushing stats, rushing averages, carries, bulk volume, Michael Carter actually outrushed a guy like Javante Williams. So that kind of breaks the mindset that you have with those two guys of you would expect Michael Carter to be the ahead, like head above all receiving Savant in the backfield. You should see numbers that would support that in the offense. But unfortunately, Javante Williams is the one that does that. For Javante Williams, the guy who's the road grader, the big body between the tackles, you would expect him to have more rushing yards than the incumbent guy like Michael Carter. But it was actually flip-flopped. The stats actually point towards the other one being slightly better than the other one, vice versa. Sorry. If you guys hear uh, mild squeaking is uh, recording, it's my dog. He's chasing bunnies right now. So we'll segue away from that. Um, the aspect that is the biggest difference between the two prospects, though, when you're looking at a pure number standpoint is actually the rushing touchdowns. So the reason that everyone is talking about Javante Williams this last year going into the 2021 fantasy season is the fact that he scored 19 touchdowns on the ground this year, which brought his total rushing touchdowns over the last two years to 24. That is exactly two times as many as a guy like Michael Carter, who's sitting at 12 over the last two years. He did have nine this year and only three prior. Um, but when they got in the red zone specifically this year at University of North Carolina, the only man who got the ball was Javante Williams. It's not because Michael Carter was not able to. It's just they saw his skill set and guys just could not cover him this year. He was a man with his hair on fire. He was running violent and angry, and that meant his end zone, his run, He's getting in. It doesn't matter. Um, so Mac Brown did the smart thing. If the guy's cooking, just keep feeding him. But that is a slightly concerning thing. Um, if it were to be early season this coming up year and we are not seeing Michael Carter used at all in the red zone, I might get a little bit more concerned. But the touchdowns year to year, as we know, with most of the guys in the NFL, is not a very sticky stat when it comes to wide receivers or running backs. Um we're basically all sitting here flabbergasted at the fact of how Aaron Jones has posted three consecutive seasons of double digit touchdowns because it's not something you typically see from a running back. And it's not something that you can really expect that 19 touchdown total is very inflated. I think there's been three running backs in the last like 20 years. If I remember that correctly have posted 19 or more rushing touchdowns, um, it's just not something that happens in the NFL. And it's definitely not something that happens if you don't have the speed to break away some long touchdown runs that you typically shouldn't make. Um, that brings us into the last basically metric that I wanted to point out. Uh, the thing that is a little bit more concerning for me as well is the overall 40 time that we got from a guy like Javante Williams. So at the pro day, he slimmed down as a lot of people, um, 
as we talked about earlier. And a lot of people are expecting that to be because he was wanting to test better in his metrics, but he actually tested pretty poorly. He came in and he ran basically the, um, the PFF equated, uh, 40 time of a four, six, two, which is very concerning. If you're in the four or five range, that's okay. But four, six, two and anything higher, that's where you start saying, you're like, all right, guys, like we're kind of equating with the undrafted free agent guys. We're getting that Elijah Holyfield kind of level where you're like, you are only 212 pounds. There's no reason you should be this slow type of thing. He's running slower than a couple of tight ends ran this off season. Pretty much every wide receiver on the planet, thanks to the pro days, ran quicker than him. And so the fact that even at his pro day, he was pushing the 4-6 range is a little bit concerning to me. Um, if he were to gain weight and run the 4-6, I would be a little bit less concerned. But the fact that he's down at that 2-12, which is what we saw Travis Etienne at, and Etienne basically ran two-tenths of a second faster in a 40 it's a little bit concerning, especially because Javante does have kind of a fluid and dodgy running style. Um, he's not what I would call quick twitch. Um, but the fact is if his start stop and long speed are not as on par with what you would see typically with NFL running backs, it's something that is a little bit concerning with the way that he plays. You can't, as I said, be just a violent head North and South runner, every single run, you do have to have some tact to it. And if he doesn't have the speed to do those tactful runs, I am a little bit concerned, but again, these are just my concerns pre-draft um, of the two players. Uh, based off of metrics alone, I'm going to call it a wash on the two players. Uh, they both basically excelled in categories you wouldn't expect them to. I'm very happy with what we are looking at with the prospect of Javante Williams. Um, sorry, I'm <laughs> blanking here. Uh, Javante Williams' pass blocking capabilities, but I'm equally as excited when it comes to the pass catching capabilities of a guy like Michael Carter. Um, again, his play style while I'm watching him on tape guys reminds me exactly of Ray Rice. Um, if you put him in a Baltimore number 28 Jersey, I physically wouldn't be able to tell them a difference. And when they're out there running, they run with that deceptive power that you saw from Ray Rice. Michael Carter does not go down. He's got great run balance. And he does have a little pop to him, but he's not hes not trying to run angry like Javante did. And what we saw with um, the player profile of comp that they like to use for him is Devonta Freeman. You saw the same violent mentality that I'm talking about with Javante Williams in the package of a Michael Carter in the form of Devonte Williams or not Devonte Williams, sorry, uh, Devonte Freeman. And that's why he's fizzled out in the NFL. He could not keep up to the workload and his play started lacking due to the injuries that he was causing himself with that play style. So again, if you're a big boy, like a guy like AJ Dillon, Chris Carson, stuff like that, it can work for a little bit, but if you're a smaller back trying to run like that, it is something that is very concerning to me. And it's something that you need to watch out for. So looking at their two situations, this is where you start to see separation from the two players in my eyes. You are looking at Javante Williams going into a Pat Shermer scheme with the Denver Broncos. Um, the It's kind of up in the air this last offseason whether or not Pat Shermer is going to stick around underneath Vic Fangio to lead the offense for the Denver Broncos. Um, injuries plagued the team last year. That's a large part as some of why their stats were actually poor, but the last two years is what I'm looking at. And that counts for the offensive systems that these two players are going in as well. So when you look at two years ago, Pat Shermer in the giants offense combined with the 
stint in Denver in 2020, you'll see that the overall offensive rank for their teams, including passing, scrimmage yards in general, and rushing, was sitting at 27th. When you look at the rush offense specifically, you're looking at a 15th rated offense, and that is right down the middle of the field. There's nothing special about the offenses that he runs in my eyes. Um, it's just there's a lot of weapons there that if they had a quarterback, everyone likes to talk about how efficient it could be. But overall, his system is not very efficient. Um, you have players basically that were breaking out in ways that you didn't expect over the last couple of years in a guy like Philip Lindsay, the undrafted free agent, in Tim Patrick, their star last year after Cortland Sutton went down. I don't want to completely bury Pat Shermer this last year due to the fact that we did have a Cortland Sutton going down. He was working with a couple of rookies in his receiving core. And at one point he was working with a wide receiver at quarterback for one game. But with the current quarterback situation that they have, Pat Shermer there running an offense that's pretty vanilla, honestly, if you look at it, and not typically predicated on the run specifically, it is a little bit concerning when you're looking at what he's walking into in a guy like Jamonte Williams. So when you look at the RB carries, it kind of goes hand in hand with this. So for the last two years, Pat Shermer's offensive rush volume total average has been at 402. That's bottom seven in the league. He's at seventh over that span. In a similar fashion, as you guys have kind of noticed, with all of these prospects that I'm going over in the Oklahoma drill, I have been going over their basically expected role. I'm not, I'm very similar vein as Memphis. I don't like to look at the absolute best situation that could possibly happen. I'm more of looking at the realistic kind of floor situation that you're expecting with these players and going in. I think that you're looking at Javante Williams as the RB2 going into the season, okay? There was that nice little puff camp talk about him potentially being the RB1 from the get-go, but Melvin Gordon is a very good running back. He's very efficient in the red zone. He's a decent pass blocker, like I said, and overall he has a pretty good grasp on the offense. That can be seen when you look at the overall RB2 carry averages, why it's so important. So over the last two years, that span, Pat Shermer's RB2 carry average on his teams is 74 carries. He is a very big fan of attempting to give workhorse roles to his lead backs. If you're the number one coming in, if you're not injured and you're at least producing, he will stick with you. He'll sprinkle in that change of pace back, but typically he likes to stick with one guy in a very similar vein of what we saw with Tomlin in the Steelers offense of the last couple of years with Bell and then with Connor. If he's healthy, he's going to put him in and he's going to give him a large majority of the work. So when you look at that, that's even more concerning when you look at the actual rush pass breakdown of a Pat Shermer offense. They are predicated on the pass game first. They're at a 57% pass rating and a 43% rush grade. So that once again is in the bottom 10 of the NFL over that two year span. And another concerning aspect, as we talked about rushing, is the receiving aspect. So over the last few years, his running back targets has averaged 85 targets over the last two years. Once again, it's bottom eight. He does not target his running backs with passes. So that third down work I was referring to, it's looking like even if Javante Williams were to step in to the lead role, you're looking at a lot of blocking coming from the running back as opposed to a lot of receiving production, which is what we want in our base formats of half PPR and full PPR that we see a lot in the NFL today. 
85 targets is not a lot, guys. You see guys like Austin Eckler, Alvin Kamara, uh, CMC double that almost. It's just something that if you're not breaking 100 as a player, it's concerning. And let alone if you're not breaking 100 as a team over the last two years, that's something that is a huge red flag for me. Another aspect that we're talking about in this is the fact that I think he's coming in as the two. So I'm going to be looking at the injury of the RB1 for each of these players' averages. So you would think that the number would be drastically high with the fact that one of Shermer's offenses was with a guy like Saquon who got injured partially through the year last year. But the fact is that in a Pat Shermer scheme the last two years, he's only had two total games averaged missed by the lead back in stat production going in to the end of the year. Um, in contrast, when you're looking at Mike LaFleur for Michael Carter's new situation, the lead back of the last two years in San Francisco has missed six games. Now, I understand San Francisco seems to have the injury bug with a lot of their players. Might be the training staff, might be the health medical staff. I don't really know. But only having two missed games on average per year by the lead back and the fact that the drastic RB production going to the RB1 in a patch number system is there, it's concerning to me if Javante Williams does not win the lead role in 2021 within the first, I would say, probably two to three games. If he doesn't, you're pretty much looking at a situation that is extremely concerning to me. You're not looking at a lot of touch volume. You're not looking at a lot of pass volume on third down. And you're looking at a guy who may be predicated to a two down roll type of guy. And you might get a very messy situation, kind of what we saw with Tampa Bay last year with Ronald Jones, Leonard Fournette, that whole thing. So transitioning into the other player, we're going to be looking at Michael Carter and Michael LaFleur's offense. So Michael LaFleur actually has never been an offensive coordinator in the NFL so far. He's been the pass game coordinator the last two years for the 49ers, and this will be his first stint. But Robert Sala believes in Mike LaFleur. He brought him over. He believes that he can bring in the twists, turns, and fun little system that is Michael Shanahan's offense. Granted, no one in the Michael Shanahan tree has been able to basically translate exactly what he does, but there are little fun twists that are thrown in. There's a lot of wide receiver production in the backfield based off the players that they've had, which is something should be a little bit concerning to the average fantasy player when you're looking at a guy like Michael Carter. But outside of Elijah Moore, another rookie coming in, there's actually not a lot of offensive weapons that have carry production with their teams. So, when you're looking at the offensive ranks of San Francisco over the last two years with Mike LaFleur in the middle of them, you're looking at the 15th overall ranked offense through those two years, so smacked up in the middle, and their rush offense has actually ranked 8th on average with a top three finish two years ago. So when you're looking at those, you can obviously assume that you're going to see some higher production volume totals as well. When you look at the overall rush volume for the team, there was 65 more carries at 467. That one is actually top nine over the last two years, with the top always being Baltimore. They're breaking 500 carries pretty much every year, which is kind of unattainable, but San Francisco was pretty close two years to doing that. So then when you look at the RB2 carries, this is where it's a little bit more 
promising. You're looking on average at 124 carries from the RB2 over the last two years in the San Francisco offense. Now, again, I prefaced that with saying that a lot of it was due to some injury concerns with some of the players, specifically Moster and Jeff Wilson, pretty much always being hurt, as well as Telvin Coleman. But if that is the case and you're concerned with injuries, what's better news than bringing in one of those injury guys as the only true competition in the backfield to a guy like Michael Carter. The Jets also this offseason brought in Tevin Coleman to compete for backfield touches. I think that's mainly due to the fact of the complexity that you're looking at with a offense such as a Shanahan offense. So I think they wanted a guy in the backfield to basically be able to teach everyone how to run that system effectively. And that's Honestly, what I think Tevin Coleman is, he's proven that he can't be an overall workhorse back. He's always going to be a timeshare back, and he's always going to be a guy that there are large injury concerns with. He's been injured pretty much every year for the last five years. And if he does end up winning the overall job to begin with, it's only a matter of time, basically, before he hops out of the role. That comes into play when you look at the RB1 injuries. Like I said, that's six per season is what they've averaged of the last two games, which in this year, if it were to be six, you're looking at 11 games of workhorse role production in a Kyle Shanahan offense if a guy like Michael Carter was also going to be able to stay healthy. So when you're looking at the rat run pass volume, uh, once again, this one actually was a little bit surprising to me. You're looking at actually only at 45% rushing, but the overall play speed and play volume of plays San Francisco has been in the top five the last two years. So it's something that although the percentages may be a little bit misleading, the overall volume still leans in the San Francisco system that we're going to be looking at with the Jets this year. When you look at RB targets, the average RB targets in a, a Mike LaFleur slash Shanahan system over the last two years has been actually 115. So not a ton more than the RB targets that you're looking at Pat Shermer, but it does break that 100 threshold that I was concerned about. And it's actually not that, not that concerning to me and pretty normal when you're looking at the fact that so many different players, both wide receiver and running back, were taking touches out of the backfield as well as out of those gadgety roles in guys like Debo Samuel, Brando Ayuk. The average depth of the target, as everyone likes to point out, with a guy like Ayuk was two and a half yards this last year. So the fact is he's the guy that's catching those quick screens, those quick outs, those routes out of the backfield, immediate dump offs that you would typically see from your third down back or your satellite backs out of the backfield. Switching to a new not new scheme, but a new city with a lot less of those yards after catch weapons that you would be expecting to see in a system such as this. That's something that's an uptick for me in a guy like Michael Carter. So you're looking at a lot of those quick touches and quick targets that would have gone to guys like Debo Samuels and Ayuk last year. I think honestly going to between Elijah Moore and Michael Carter, the two rookies that are on the team. I think there is a lot up in the air also when it comes to the Jets with their quarterback position. Uh, Anyone who's listened to me knows I am not a huge Zach Wilson fan. And I think there could be a a lot of um, Drew Locke in his game. Only time will tell. It is something that's a little bit concerning to me. But with a rookie quarterback, everyone likes to point out the fact that typically you don't throw him under the fire and you almost always lean on the run game. So the fact that the biggest competition in the backfield is in New York is a guy like Tevin Coleman. It makes me very happy that they have a rookie running back with a rookie quarterback.
it's one of those pairings that I think is going to end up actually working very well if Michael Carter is as good as a lot of the hype that's coming out in the press is actually about. The biggest nail in the coffin, I think, in Javante Williams in this role for 2021 that we're looking at, guys, is the vacated touches that are associated with the position. So these are RB-specific touches. Denver only has 29% of their vacated RB touches on the team. They lost Philip Lindsay, and that's pretty much accounted for all of them. And anyone who watches Denver, if you're not curious, that was pretty much the only person on the team that touched the ball outside of Melvin Gordon last year. So almost every single touch outside of Melvin Gordon's was gone from the team. So yes, Javante Williams could feasibly come in immediately and be that 30% role. But again, 30% of the overall touches in this offense would only be a total of looking at about 100 touches on the year. And he is not the explosive playmaker long distance and breakaway distance that can do what he did in college on such a little volume role in the offense. In contrast, you look at the Jets vacated touches from the RB position. They are sitting at 58%. So you're looking at literally almost double the vacated total targets. So almost pushing 200, not target, sorry, uh, overall volume. So almost 200 total touches vacated from the RB position in the Jets. They did bring in Tevin Coleman. I understand that. I've explained it quite a bit. But the fact is there's a lot of overall rush volume and target volume up in the air currently for the Jets. They're in the top four of vacated RB touches going into this season. And they're bringing in a new young running back with honestly not a ton of tread on his tires. So when you're looking at these two running backs, guys, a lot of it's gut feel. I get it. If you like to see those big bruising backs, you're going to love to see a guy like Javante Williams. You're going to believe in a guy like Javante Williams. And it's fun to watch him. I'm not saying that I don't believe that he can be a successful running back. I'm just saying that from day one, specifically 2021, in the Jets system with the skill set that he has and the overall body makeup. I see Ray Rice and Michael Carter. I see a star in Michael Carter. I see a guy who, unlike Gio Bernard, who a lot of people think he looks like, he's going into a situation where he can easily beat out the competition around him. If you remember the Gio Bernard days, he came in with Jeremy Hill. There was that awkward timeshare between two rookies, which is pretty much the worst thing you can see. And Honestly, what I think we're going to see a lot of in San Francisco, where Mike LaFleur is coming from, but the fact that the current ADP difference between the two players is literally almost an entire round is baffling to me. Um, Right now, if I'm in drafts, I'm taking Michael Carter above Trey Sermon. I'm taking Michael Carter above a lot of those second round wide receivers, even Terrace Marshall. If I'm in the beginning of the second round, I'm going to be taking Michael Carter over a guy like Terrace Marshall, who is going to be competing for the third string touches on his team. It's a position of importance, and it's important to be able to basically acquire as many young running backs with opportunity as you can. Again, I understand the draft capital. I understand the size difference, although it's not as big as people like to blow it up to be. And I understand that they play different games. This one's a little bit different of an Oklahoma drill, guys. I just wanted to talk about Michael Carter, give you some of the numbers and kind of the systems that they're going into so you have a better understanding of what to expect from them. But in 2021, 
with the two backs of opposite skill sets and honestly opposite systems and opposite opportunities, I'm going to be leaning Michael Carter every time over a guy like Javante Williams. If I'm in the first round, I'm okay passing on a guy like Javante Williams to take one of the high-end wide receivers with the hopes of getting Michael Carter at a deflated ADP in the second round. It's something that I would suggest. It's something that I would go out and look for. Um, Over the last couple weeks, there hasn't been a lot of talk surrounding a guy like Michael Carter. So this is the time to buy him. Before we get into training camp, before we get into all those talks, we've been hearing nothing but Trey Sermon fluff up the last couple weeks. Everyone's forgetting about Michael Carter. Everyone's forgetting about his production that we actually saw and the significantly greater production than a guy like Trey Sermon. So once again, guys, Michael Carter over Javante Williams for me. Flame me. Talk to me about it. If you have any questions about any of the stuff that I'm talking about, any of the stats where I got my info, please at me. It's at Salad Galore. Hit me up in the Patreon. If you're not part of the Patreon, you got to join it. It's still popping off. I've gotten so many messages posting this. Um, I'm also in the middle of watching the Italy-England uh, Euro final. Uh, England just lost. Spoiler, if you weren't paying attention. Um, but... I'm telling you guys, Michael Carter is going to be a monster at the next level. I really do think we're going to be seeing the 2.0 version of Ray Rice without the sketchy stuff that he does on the side. And we're going to be, for years to come, seeing a guy in that role who can produce top eight numbers, most likely. And that's not reaching at straws. That's not being overly ambitious in a running back-focused system like a lot of Shanahan's disciples have having a lead back role with elite pass catching upside is something that we're searching for. And it's something that we have to have confidence in. So thanks for tuning in guys. This has been another Oklahoma drill. It's been fun getting back with you and I'm excited. We've got a couple of guests actually lined up. The platform is going to be changing here a little bit. I will be scattering in Oklahoma drills, but it's going to be a lot more positional based and a lot more, 2021 focused content over the next month as we kind of roll into training camp and we roll into the redraft season. I want to be focusing on the guys that are going to be helping you in 2021 as opposed to long-term dynasty value. So again, you got any questions, you want to hit me up, you want to chat about anything soccer specifically, I'm in a pretty big soccer mood, hit me up at Salad Galore or in the Patreon. And until next week, guys, this has been Dallas. I am signing off. When we add up all those inches, that's going to make the fucking difference between winning and losing. We won a game yesterday. And if we win one today, that's two in a row. We win one tomorrow, that's called a winning streak.